Well, if you're not already in Genesis 46, I would love for you to open up your Bible with me there. And um, I'm actually not going to read the whole chapter. Uh, so uh, follow along with me, though, as I do begin to read in verse 1. It says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, and his daughters and his sons' daughters All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now, I'm actually going to skip a number of verses here. We'll pick up in verse 26. And the reason is because we're just going to get a whole bunch of names of Jacob's sons and daughters and his sons' sons. And I can't pronounce half of them anyway. So you can go home and read that part. Verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. So then when you include Joseph and also Jacob, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. All right, so let's look closely at a couple of things, beginning in verse 1. In verse 1, we see Jacob called by the name that God gave him, his new name, Israel. Remember, that means he wrestles with God. And as he's making his way down to Egypt, Jacob, or Israel, After learning that Joseph is alive and well, he makes this stop at Beersheba and he offers sacrifices to God. And there's two things that I want you to see here, okay? First, maybe you remember the name Beersheba. Uh, It should actually stand out to you. Maybe it's vaguely familiar. If you were to remember way back in Genesis to many months ago, chapter 21, verse 33, 
then you would recall that at one point, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan at Beersheba. And while he was at Beersheba, he planted a tree, a tamarisk tree. Do you remember that? Beersheba was the place that Abraham, back then I said, finally put down roots, quite literally. He decided that he would make a home in the land of Canaan, the promised land. And now here's Jacob, or Israel as he's being called, on his way out of the promised land. He's leaving the land that God promised to give to Abraham and his descendants. And he makes a stop at the place where his grandfather Abraham settled. And there he offers a sacrifice to God. But Jacob is not settling in the place where his grandfather lived. Instead, he's actually exiting the place where God told him to live. God told Abraham that his family would own this land. Hang on to that thought for a minute. The second important detail in verse 1 is that Jacob is being called Israel. And this is the name God specifically gave to this man It's also the name by which his descendants and the descendants of Abraham will be known as a nation, the nation of Israel. Now here's why these are important details in verse 1, okay? Although Israel is going down to the land of Egypt, indeed we see in verse 3 that he's essentially commanded to go down to Egypt by God. This is all a part of God's plan as well. I mean, this should come as no surprise to you because we've been talking about God's providence, his plan, his sovereignty in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the descendants of Israel. This is all part of God's plan for the children of Abraham as they become the nation that God promised Abraham they would be. Israel is being led away from the promised land after all this time. That's true. But they're only being led away from the promised land because God himself planned this from the beginning for his purposes. Remember with me all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. I know it was a long, long time ago. But God already told Abraham this is exactly what was going to happen. When God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain then your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And your descendants shall come back here in the fourth generation after the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. So we were told ahead of time how this drama was going to unfold and how it would turn out. The children of Abraham are going to become a great nation, but they're not going to become a great nation until they first have faced great affliction, serious adversity. They won't become a great nation until God has delivered them from slavery. 
until God himself has rescued them and brought them fully and finally into the promised land. And so Jacob is not abandoning the promised land as he goes down to Egypt. No, instead he is heading exactly where God intends him to be. This was foretold two generations ago. It is God's will for these people to pass through the trial of slavery and hardship before God will redeem them from that for his purposes in order to fulfill his promises. And of course, don't you see what a picture this is for the Christian life? So much of what we read in the Old Testament is a picture for us of what things will be like in our relationship with Jesus. And this is a picture of the Christian life. The blessing of our closeness to God that God has promised to us is born out of the trials and the suffering that we experience in this life. The trials and the suffering from which God is redeeming us and rescuing us by his grace the trials from which he has delivered us through the blood of Christ, but the blessing that comes only on the other side of those trials, those difficulties, those times of suffering. I mean, redemption is sweet when you've been redeemed from something, isn't it? And we can see this idea further developed, I think, in verse 4. God says to Jacob, Jacob, I myself will go down with you into Egypt. And I, I will bring you up out of Egypt again. And in the context of Jacob's life, God is telling this man, don't be afraid of this journey down to Egypt. Don't be afraid of what Abraham knew would be there waiting, slavery. Don't be afraid that if you leave this land that you have been promised, that you'll never return here. If Jacob leaves the promised land, he will not forfeit the blessing that God has promised him, the blessing that God swore to Abraham. Quite the opposite, in fact. In being obedient to God, telling him to go down to Egypt and to not be afraid, Jacob will be fulfilling the prophecy that God gave to Abraham all those years ago. And so the blessing of Abraham upon the children of Israel is intimately bound up with Jacob going down into Egypt where there will be slavery and affliction and hardship. And there's something personal, I think, for us to learn from God's words in verse 4. Again, maybe you see it already. Something instructive about the nature of God and our relationship with him. In the context of our fuller understanding of the Bible, I think that we can see Egypt as a kind of picture, a metaphor for slavery to sin. Right? Don't you see Israel ends up in slavery in Egypt and God miraculously redeems them out of that slavery? Well, that's a picture of sin and redemption. Sin enslaves us. Just the same way Egypt will end up enslaving the children of Israel 
But God's power is greater than the power of Egypt. We're not going to get into Exodus, but I'm sure you know the story. Pharaoh is basically a god. But Yahweh, the one true God, puts Pharaoh to shame by displaying the greater power of God to redeem. And so God can promise this man Israel that he will bring his descendants safely up out of Egypt and safely back into the promised land because God's power is greater. And of course, from this promise that God makes to Jacob, we can draw out a beautiful principle for the Christian life. God will not permit even the enslaving power of sin to ruin God's plans for our good. God's intention for us, for his people, is to redeem us out of the slavery of sin in order that he might bless us and bring us safely home, bring us back to himself, bring us into the promised land, which is the kingdom of God, where our hearts are not ruled by sin, but ruled by Christ himself. But like Israel, we must pass through Egypt. You You cannot live this life without passing through the tragedy of sin because of the fall. But in passing through that tragedy of sin, we come to fully understand God's power and God's love for us and God's ability to save and redeem and restore. And we will indeed pass through the slavery of sin because God is faithful. Not because you are faithful, But because God is faithful, God will rescue and redeem us. God will lead us to leave the slavery of sin behind as we move to dwell more fully in the land of his promise, the land of grace, his kingdom, where Christ rules and reigns. And so friends, here's here's what I'm driving at. Do not be discouraged by the power of sin in your life because God's power is greater. I have to believe that I'm not the only one who feels weary of living in a sinful world. Not just the sin that's out there, but the sin that still lurks in here. So I'll preach to myself this morning, if nobody else. Let us not be discouraged by the power of sin. Because God's power is greater. God's power is greater to redeem us out of it. God's power is greater to restore what it tears down. God's power is greater to heal what seems wounded beyond repair. God has set us free. He is setting us free. He will set us free. He will bring us up again. Even as he is with us in the midst of it. What wonderfully good news. What's our part? It's only to hold fast our confidence in his greater power. To cling to him. To not grow weary of holding on to him. Now for the sake of time, we skipped over reading verses 8 through 25. But let me tell you what their significance is. Genesis is moving towards a resolution. We're coming to the end. Okay. Now it's going to be another month, but we're getting there. And it's coming to a close But early on, back in chapters 10 and 11, just before we met Abraham, there was an event that unfolded in Genesis that has 
far-reaching global and historical consequences for humanity. And I'm not talking about the flood. That is important, but that's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about the Tower of Babel. Because at the Tower of Babel, two significant things took place. In chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis, again, just before we meet Abraham, first, in a great act of pride, man says, let us ascend to the place of God. We can be gods. And God disrupts this plan by confusing the language of humanity. And after confusing their language, he disperses them across the earth. He divides them down into smaller ethnic groups. Different tribes and tongues and nations. Connected to the Tower of Babel, it actually precedes it in chapter 10, but I think it's all meant to be one picture. You have what's called the Table of Nations. And we did talk about this back in chapter 10. But the important piece here is that we're told about how the various people groups on earth divided. And they divided down from the descendants of Noah, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and why can I not think of the third one? Japheth? Yeah, thank you. Specifically in Genesis chapter 10, we're told about mankind being divided into 70 nations. Now here's the point. In Genesis chapter 46, Moses, who is the narrator here, goes out of his way to make the family of Jacob number 70 people total. And the reason he does this is so that the descendants of Jacob will correspond with the descendants of Noah who become 70 dispersed nations. Let me say it another way. The descendants of Noah became 70 nations divided across the face of the earth, a tragic effect of man's sinful pride. But now, as we approach the end of Genesis we see that the descendants of Israel number 70 people who are united as one nation. This is the blessing of God to unify a people together for his purposes. See, with the number 70 in Genesis 46, we're being told that God is now working to undo the division that man's pride brought upon humanity. God's plan is to bring all people together again under one banner, the banner of Israel, which I would say is ultimately the banner of Christ. So even here at the beginning, the beginning of God's plan of redemption, working through the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, we are getting a hint of what is to come. What is God going to do in the world now that Genesis is coming to a close? God is going to be at work bringing together all of the nations under one man, Jesus. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Man, this is so beautiful. I hope you see this picture. That the beginning of the Bible deals with 
division because of sin, but points us towards reunification through grace. And Revelation ties it all up for us. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There's so much more than I have time to touch on there, but hopefully you at least get the picture that I'm trying to paint here. This is... A final fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham. Do you remember? God said to that man, through your seed, Abraham, I will bring blessing to all the nations. And that seed is ultimately Jesus. And the blessing is that all who share in the faith of Abraham will be ransomed out of sin by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. And there will be people from all the dispersed nations of the earth. The nations that because of their pride were divided. From those divided nations, God is making for himself one new nation brought together, unified in their awe of God's glory because of what the Lamb has done. All of this accomplished not through the pride of man who said, let us rise, but through the humility of God who said, let us go down. Christ, who spilled his blood to reconcile God and man. That's the direction that Genesis is taking us, towards reconciliation, the restoration of all things. And it's hinted at even here in Genesis 46 with the 70 people in Jacob's family. And it ends, chapter 46, with the same emphasis we see the family of Israel now reconciled, even in their own little family unit. Joseph and his father Jacob reunified. And this is the story of Joseph's life in a nutshell, isn't it? Father and son brought back together. Brothers reconciled. Even the nations being reconciled as Israel becomes one with Egypt. 
At least for now, these two people groups come together. And ultimately, this is pointing towards the relationship between God and man being reconciled. The greatest reconciliation of all. The nations will be reconciled because man will be reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. And this is the beautiful trajectory that Scripture is moving in. Jesus reconciling the world to himself through his blood. And Genesis winds to a close, setting the story of God off in this direction. The direction of restoration and reconciliation, the healing of the nations, the redemption of mankind, the work of God to set all things aright that humanity through sin broke. Let me close by just reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that although Genesis opens with man in his pride attempting to be like God. We thank you that as this book comes to a close, it points to our God who reconciles. Our God who takes what man divided and reunites it. Jesus, we thank you that you are the lamb who is worthy. The lamb who was slain. The Lamb who by your blood has made a kingdom of priests from all the nations of the earth. One kingdom. United in shared awe for the glory of this God who is the Lion of Judah. And God, we thank you that even though in this life we are plagued by sin... We thank you that you are with us and that you will surely bring us up out of this, not because we are faithful, but because Christ has done it. I pray that we would live in that confidence, live in that joy, that we would cling to you in all of these things. Oh, and Lord, would you fill our hearts with a desire to be part of that throng who praises the Lamb on that day giving all glory to Christ for what he has done. Amen.